Hey everyone, and welcome back to CDY Blackout, bringing the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me now, he is the author of the very soon-to-be-released Something Stirs. This is out October 13th through our good friends at Cemetery Dance Publications. Thomas Smith joins me, and Thomas, welcome to the show, man. It is so cool to have you here. Oh, it's good to be here, Max. Thanks for having me. Of course, man, of course. And I am uh, partially into the book now. I am just before Chapter 6. And I gotta say, folks, this is a good horror book. Like, it's a good pacing, it's terrifying, and the characters are really well done. Um, So, obviously, huge fan and a lot to talk about here. I guess I want to open with just giving us a quick walkthrough as to what happens in the story. Um, Initially, the the house is not the typical, it's old, it's been there, people have been killed, people went crazy kind of thing. This is a brand new house, and while it's under construction, a handful of teenagers decide they're going to go up and uh, have a ritual to summon a demon and they want this thing to do their bidding. Uh, the problem is the deputy sheriff making his patrol saw lights up in a house that's still under construction and said that's not right and so as he's coming up the drive they see him coming up in the car they're in the middle of the ritual and they hit the back door and so this thing has the, the ritual is stopped in the middle which means that the thing they are trying to conjure is caught in the stone and the glass and the wood of the house. It hasn't completely come through. And so the the issue becomes, what is it going to do? It wants to come into our world. But the thing they had not gotten to was the blood sacrifice, hence the item in the bag that we won't say, but the item in the bag was happy. <laughs> um, but... A few days later, as construction is continuing on the house, a workman is injured. He cuts off two fingers, and we begin to know something is wrong at that point because as they're hustling him into the truck, the person driving the truck says, get the fingers, bring them in case the doctor can sew them back on. And they go, look, the blood is gone. The fingers are gone. Uh, So essentially what happens from that point, once the house is finished, the chalmers move in, and the thing in the house realizes it needs blood in order to transfer over. So it starts with small animals, you know, mice, that sort of thing. But it also realizes it can't touch the family directly, but it can manipulate the house until it comes through completely. And just to give you a hint, if you look at the book cover, there is a doll on the front with a wicked looking box cutter. And if the doll is in contact with the floor or the window or the wall or anything like that, it's really not very nice. Oh, good. Haunted dolls. I love those. Yeah. <laughs> That's just wonderful. Yeah. That's. I'm going to enjoy reading this alone. This will be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Don't take this the wrong way, but I hope you need a nightlight. <laughs> yeah, probably will. I probably, I probably will be sleeping with the lights on, with a loaded gun, and probably a bat, just to be That's sure. That's what things. I like to hear. <laughs> I did my job. Exactly. Exactly. All right. I really like the concept of like the haunted house and the demon. And I think this might actually be the first time that a book on demon summoning bought online actually works. <laughs> That's the thing that I, that I took away from the early chapters. Like, holy crap, it worked? Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Craigslist, good job. Yeah, she'd be able to sell this for a lot. <laughs> I wonder what she paid for it. Jeez. Well, I hadn't thought about that in marketing. Got his uh, money's worth. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
what went into just sort of devising the demon itself? You know, this force that's inhabiting the house and killing things, basically, trying, as you mentioned, transition over to our world. That was actually one of the interesting parts. The book was originally written for the Christian market. And it was uh, there was a point back in 2011 in there when the Christian market was saying, we want to start publishing horror. We won't use that word, but that's what we want to do. And so it, the thing about a book written for that market, and I told the publisher when they, when they bought it, I said, this is not a let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and we'll pray and the bad thing will go away. That is not the book you're buying. But the other part of it was it had to be theologically correct. So in doing the research, I thought, I, you know, I want to write a haunted house book. The Christian market is looking for something like this. I can do this, but I need to make sure it's right. And one of the things I realized is just using the, the typical ghost or that kind of thing in the house and, and messing with the people. That was probably not going to fly with some publishers. And I thought, okay. How does this house turn on people? And in doing the research, uh, there was a class of demon that could manipulate or could possess inanimate objects. And I said, bingo, got my hook. Because I wanted to write the haunted house novel, but I had to make it work. And so at that point, it came together. And I said, okay, this, this, will, this will happen. And so that was sort of the, the point when everything fell together. All right. You know, up until recently, I had only become aware of Christian horror as a genre. I had no idea they even existed. What exactly is Christian horror? How does it kind of stand apart from just like regular horror? The the biggest thing is the way it's approached. For example, I can write a haunted house book, but it has to and and in in um secular or regular horror, whatever you want to call it. You know, it has to it has to adhere to its rules as well. I mean, you can create all the rules, but once you've created them, the story has to stick to them. You know, if you say a haunted house is only haunted on odd number of days, then you better not bring anything out on an even number of day. Well, in in the Christian market, it's the same way. But in uh, in the Christian market, the the language, you know, there are things that. Um, well, like I said that a lot of a lot of it was really saccharine and really bad. And people that wrote Christian fiction overall back back then will tell you too. The dialogue was, I mean, if you listen to enough of it, you become a diabetic. It was just so saccharine. And but there, you know, it, like we had said earlier, it wasn't going to be one of those let's hold hands, sing kumbaya, we'll get the prayer warriors together and they will pray the bad thing out of existence. I said, no, that um, that can't happen because that's not real life. But yet that was the kind of thing that that one found in Christian horror. And, and you, unless you were Ted Decker or somebody like that and could get away with with a little bit more. But the but the language was cleaned up. There were certain scenes, uh, certain scenes that you can't do. There are certain things that are off limits. Um, you don't really have the freedom to expand into the actual darkness that you would in, in regular horror. So what you have is I want to, regardless of whether it's me or, or Decker or who else, uh, you know, Frank Peretti, anybody else, I want to write this really dark story about evil, but I can't get too dark and I can't get too evil. That changed over the years to a certain extent, but 
in the um, in the beginning, your hands are kind of tied if you were coming from a traditional horror background, saying, you know, because because my characters, even in a, a Christian horror novel, would be more more likely to say, OK, get in here, get geared up. We're going to go pray. We're going to kick some undead ass. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a very, very different story. And one of the things uh, that I noticed ab about your characters is they're also religious. You know, like they take time to pray. They thank God for the gifts given, especially your main character, uh, Ben Chalmers. He's a novelist who, who kind of goes from like zero to hero. He's been kind of an unknown, not working with a great publisher to working with a great, with a much better publisher. And all of a sudden he's this runaway success. His books are flying off the shelves. People recognize him in the streets. I'm curious if Ben's career it all kind of like echoes your own or, or if his experiences have, have echoed your own. Oh, I really wish they did. <laughs> <laughs> now it's um, Ben, there's some, there's some parts of Ben that I look at and I see a little bit of me in there. The, you know, the way his things have flown, you know, flown off the shelf and that sort of thing. Mine has been a kind of different in that I've written so many different kinds of things. I was introduced at a writer's conference one time as the only writer in captivity to ever be in projects with Stephen King and Reverend Rick Warren in the same week. So I was writing on both sides of the fence. I was writing, you know, um, Christian, uh, Christian work and also writing the regular kinds of things and, do, you know, doing both at the same time. Um, but my trajectory hasn't actually followed Ben's, but I did sit back and think, okay, you know, how is this guy? Well, number one, how's this guy going to be in this house? Uh, the um, the big thing, too, about uh, about Christian fiction generally is that's what people expect. They expect the, the characters, you know, the good characters to be believers or at least have that sort of mindset and the evil characters, not necessarily so. But again, the thing that I didn't want to do was have characters. I wanted them to be real, but not that sort of, please just hush, just go. I've, I've heard enough. Because again, even, even back then, um, my job wasn't to hammer people over the head with it. You know, there were certain expectations. And probably had I written this as a straight horror, and now this being re-released, I would have changed some of that. But when, um, when Kevin at Cemetery Dance uh, said, I want to bring in books that I think should be back in print, including faith-based books. I thought, okay, I need to change some things, but I don't need to change a lot because that's what he's buying. Yeah. And I also want to ask about that too, because in doing my research, I found that, that uh, this book was originally released in 2011 and is now being re-released in 2022. What is different about the two books though? It might sell this time. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's great. <laughs> well, one, one, one of the things that is different is you won't find a fax machine or a cordless phone in this book anywhere. But when I wrote it in 2011, that was sort of the technology of the day. Um, I did go in and rewrite a few scenes and make them not quite as sterile as they had been. I did go in and pull a couple of things out just because they um, they didn't really make sense anymore considering where the book was going. But I, I wanted to find that line between changing the book that, that Kevin wanted to publish, but, you know, being true to what the story should be too. So, you know, it can be a faith-based haunted house novel, but still not, um, 
you know, be a little darker than it was, go and go to some places that it probably did not go. So I did do a little rewriting, uh, some updating, again, bringing it into into 2022. Um, so anywhere you see cell phone now, it probably really was a cordless phone. <laughs> I remember <laughs> those days. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you almost get to live like the writer's dream. You get to take a book that you've already published and basically fix everything you didn't like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that I really am lucky in in that um, in that respect because it fortunately I, I say fortunately the um, the initial marketing and everything just it wasn't interesting. We'll leave it at that for right now. But the other thing is I get to see the book come out with a publisher that knows what to do with it. Yeah, and let's talk about that because obviously finding the right publisher can I feel like can make or break a book. How did you connect yeah. with Cemetery Dance? Oh, it's um, I've been begging to get in the door for twenty years. <laughs> yes, I, I I I have done a little bit of work with them. Uh, there was a Charles Grant issue that came out, and I wrote an appreciation for Charlie for that. But um. Kevin actually reached out to me. He had read something stirs. And when he opened up the um, the window for people to submit things, he actually reached out to me and he said, look, I'm trying to do, you know, as as the new head of the um, the uh, um, ebook and paperback, uh, he said, what I want to do is bring some books back that I think really should be back in print. He said, and something stirs really didn't get off the launching pad to start with. And I want to see if we can't get it off the launching pad, um, which was flattering. But also, and I said, well, you 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 understand it was written for the Christian market. He said, I'm looking for those, too. He said, because horror readers will read anything if they think it's good. He said, and you don't tend to hammer people over the head with it. It just is what it is. And that's the reason for the um for the author's note at the end of the the end of the book too is saying basically you know if you don't believe the way I do that's okay I still hope it's a good story you know I'm not trying to hammer you over the head but these characters would act this way but still hopefully at the end of the day you'll look at it and go don't necessarily agree with him but I would read some more but um but yeah when Kevin did that I said okay I want to um I want to make a few changes do do it the way it should have been done and then even when the editors were looking at it and picking up other things like, oh, would this have been the current technology or, oh, would they do this? You know, realizing that, yeah, it, it really does even sound better with, with um, the updates. So, um, but that was basically it with, with Kevin saying, I really want to bring this back out. Is it available? Yes, it is. <laughs> now, do you feel any differently with the release date coming up than you did when the book was first released? Yeah, getting back to it's actually going to be released and people will see it. The uh, when it was first released, I knew I might be in trouble when the when the original publisher had bought the book, and we were having a conference call about marketing. Uh, and again, I won't say the name of the publisher because again, they did the best they knew to do. I have no axe to grind. I mean, I will never badmouth somebody for doing the best they can do because. You know, that's really all you can do. I am a little curious why they hired, you know, paid a company to come in and show them how to launch this thing and then not. But um, if I knew everything, I'd have found a different publisher. But uh, 
but the uh, but with the original, my the first interview they set up for me was with a woman who interviewed people about Amish romance. So that should have told me something. But the thing that really should have hit me off was within our first um, in our first uh, meeting about marketing. We had a conference call, and they said, "Well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pair you with an occult expert." and send you to places like TBN and went through a lot of Christian media places. And you'll kind of go in, work as a team. You'll talk about the book and they'll talk about the dangers of not taking a cult very seriously. I thought, okay, that makes sense. They said, then we're going to do a book trailer and have it go viral. And I said, okay, um, how are you going to do that? And he got very quiet. Well, we'll work on that. I said, okay. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, oh, well, I've already deposited the check. <laughs> but again, you know, those sorts of things, um, The at one point, something stirs in this original, um, as the original was, um, I was having talks with a film company. They had wanted to make film. I said, okay, I, I can certainly do that. And the more I thought about it, I realized, wait a minute, the publisher doesn't even know about this. They haven't found any. They haven't looked into this. And so I talked to the um, to the to the um, director and said, let me ask you, how soon are you looking at doing this? They said that we are shooting one now. We're contracted for two more. So it would be the third one out before we could do that. And he, they'd gone as far as looking at CGI schedules. And, you know, if we shoot all the CGI here, then we can edit it in. And looking at budgets, I said, would you be offended if we put it on the back burner? And I said, wow. I said, well, at this point, it's business. And I looked over my contract again, and I can't see giving away money that somebody didn't do anything for and it's again, it's nothing against them, but this is a purely business decision. And I really feel weird about this. They said, so would I. Let's put it on the back burner. So, um, you know, that. but the the thing I look at now is with the marketing. Um, I was on Bloody Good Reads last week. Uh, I have um, I've been, you know, I've done blog posts and that sort of thing on Halloween and on something stirs and on the whole. How did you get here sort of thing? You know, we're sitting here having a big old time now, and nobody has mentioned Amish romance once. And now we get to talk about it. Amish romance, folks, it's a thing. <laughs> Go Google it and get the books. But yeah, it's um, but yeah, it that's the big thing is I look at what Cemetery Dance has done now, and they know what they're doing, and they know how to do it, they know where to do it, they know when to do it, and and so it's actually been a bit of a relief because um you know, I know it's in good hands, but that's all these people do. So they 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 can do it in their sleep. So it's a little different on that level. Um, again, just knowing that what's laid out actually works as far as I'm talking to the people that may want to read the book. I want to talk into how the house is is haunted because you know everyone's got their own way of doing it. How does this force manifest itself? It it starts in small ways. Uh, again, the you know the um, the workman that cuts off two fingers and they say go get them and let you know let's see if the doctor can sew them back on and they're gone because the house has absorbed it. 
it starts with small animals um, because it, it can't really, you know, this thing can't actually touch the people in the house. So it has to figure out how to manipulate the house. Uh, there is a scene with a bat that flies into the window that is really kind of creepy because it, you know, the bat hits the window and the house has got you. And then it it works up to larger animals. It works up to more because what it's having to do is absorb the blood from these animals. Then once it has enough power, it can start directly manipulating the house. You know, everything from drawers opening and doors opening to um, making things move when they shouldn't. And there is a if you if you look at the book cover, and Francois Bellancourt did an amazing job on the book cover. Um, you know, I want to buy a copy just to cut the cover off and frame it. Um, but on the cover, there is a doll that is leaning against the wall in a puddle of blood with a big, wicked, ugly box cutter. And so what the house can do, for example, with the doll, if it is touching the house, if it's on the floor, you know, if it's on the bed, all bets are off. But if it's on the floor or it's touching a wall, then suddenly the house can use it. And you just do not want that doll to be on the floor with a box cutter. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> no, no, thank you. No, thank you. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. How do you pace a book like this, you know, so that you don't just like reel everything uh, too soon or do all the scary stuff right off the bat? I'm sure somebody has a, has an answer for that. <laughs> it's when I'm writing, I have, I know what the first line is going to be. I know how it's going to end and everything in the middle is just sort of, okay, let's see how this works. A lot of it is when I think back to books I've read that I thought this is taking forever or thinking back to books I've read going, this is a little bit too fast. Um, one of the things I look at in all seriousness is um, is an old pulp writer who had his, uh, who had his theory, uh, Lester Dent, who his um, theory for writing and basically dividing the book into three sections. You, um, you know, the, the hero is in trouble. Now he's in more trouble. Now he's in more trouble. But the, but the thing that I, that I do as far as pacing is as I'm reading it, I see it sort of playing out like a movie. And there are times when I'll stop and think this, this isn't right and go back and reread it and realize that, Nothing of consequence has really happened. I mean, you know, people have done things that are important, but there hasn't been a scare or there hasn't been some sort of foreboding. My big thing is I want to get to the end of a chapter and leave something so you will want to turn the page. And but once I've gotten the first draft out, I'll go back and look at it again. And at that point, we'll make notes in places where I feel like, you know, if this were the movie. I'd be going to get popcorn, but a lot, a lot of it is, is sort of internal. It's a matter of you do it long enough that it not becomes second nature, but you kind of feel when you're getting to a point that something needs to happen here, or you get to a point that, okay, that's a bit much. Let's, let's move this over here and let's, let's redo. But again, if I'm, if I'm in there and I'm either starting to get bored or I feel like getting in the movie, I would go get popcorn then dig in and say, okay, what is this missing and how do I, you know, how do I smooth it out and get to the next level? 
did you plot this thing out or did you just kind of go by the seat of your pants? I do every, I do all of it by the seat of my pants unless it's nonfiction. <laughs> if I'm if I'm doing a nonfiction project, I will make notes, I will lay it out and all that, but but short stories, novels, novellas, that kind of thing. Like I said, once uh, I don't even have to have the title because it's probably going to change three or four times, but I will get the the first line and I will know where it's going. I'll know what the last scene should look like. And once I have the first line, then again, I'm just sort of following the character saying, "Okay, where are you going? Because I and my guess is that any writer subconsciously. When you know, I know some say I have to have it all plotted out, I have to know what the plot points are. They may not know everything that's going to happen, but they know this has to happen, this has to happen, this has, to, and then this. Um, but I think when you get to the point that you're comfortable enough to start typing, there's something in the back of your head that says, "Okay, I know where we're going. Let me have the reins. I got you. Your fir- I got your first sentence for you. I got your ending for you. Follow me." Um, so and even like for the people that do heavy plotting or even the people that are seed of your pants, but they need more than that. I, again, I think when you get to that point, you know, you're just having to to trust yourself enough to let it go, follow the characters and, and they'll let you know if you're starting to take over because again, they'll come to that point where I need to go get popcorn. I get you. When you first wrote this book, I imagine like draft one was very different from, you know, final draft. What were mm-hmm. some of the bigger changes that you made during the writing process? Um, at one point, the, the, the pivotal point in the story where they are literally coming down to the, the final battle with the demon, an entirely different person dealt with that. A, a different character went in and and it worked, but it didn't it, it, it felt like it just felt um, okay, I know this works, but it feels hollow. And the more I looked at it, I thought, well, no wonder a different person should do this. And so I scrapped that and when I put in the character that goes in and actually does battle with the demon now, thought, yes, this this gives me chills just writing it. The other thing, I originally had the house already built. It was up on Grant's Ridge. Um, and a part of this is a tribute to Charles Grant, who was my mentor and friend for 25 years. I stole the title, Something Stirs, from him. Uh, the house just happens to be on Grant's Ridge. Thought, oh, there's another one. Who saw that coming? But um, and even though he never got to read it, his wife did and said, "Yeah, I think he'd be all right with this. I think he'd like it." But uh, but the but originally, again, the um, the house was built. The family moves in, and there was still a, there was still a um, a ceremony that's cut off halfway. And I was talking to an agent friend of mine and telling him about it. He said, I'd like to take a look at that. He said, I, you don't sell that kind of thing, but I, 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 just, I would like to see it. And he read the first handful of pages and he said, I really like this. And then he went one sentence too far and caused me to scrap the first 50 pages. He said, what if instead of the house being built, what if it was still under construction and this thing has a chance to get in there and stew? I thought, oh, that is creepy. 
and then a a writer in the um, who's big into the Christian fiction as far as suspense and that sort of thing goes. Um, she and I were talking about it, and she said, "I really like the idea." She said, "Here's something to think about," and this was another twenty page. You know, strip it all out and redo it. She said, "The thing that they're trying to conjure." didn't get out but that doesn't mean something else didn't I went, oh man you're right and and that literally um those two statements changed probably the first hundred pages of the book and the first 50 i literally scrapped and started over and i liked what i had but i thought you know that's true because you can show this house starting out small and working its way up. And then just because the big bad didn't get out doesn't mean there aren't little bads out there creating havoc, trying to help it. And so though just those two things and uh, and going in and changing a character at the end, it didn't change the story, but it changed the story. <laughs> oh, definitely. You know, I want to ask about, about a couple more characters that we get introduced to one early on and one later on. Uh, Sheriff Elizabeth Cantrell and pastor turned cabinet maker Jim Perry. Uh, what roles do they have in the story? Well, um, Elizabeth Cantrell is she is the of course the sheriff, and so at some point she is pulled into the story because the family is is initially thinking, okay, somebody is out here fooling around. Uh, also, there are injuries that take place in the house. But she is pulled in just as a byproduct of, okay, we need to know what's going on out here. And plus, with the initial, you know, kids are out here, they're having this, she has to come check that out. And as she um, as she does this, she begins to realize, you know, there's probably more going on here than we realize. Is it on, on the one hand, she starts out as sort of the stereotypical, yeah, we'll figure out what's going on here. But she gradually moves into, okay, this is not what I expected. We know what's going on. i got to help these people stop it. And with Jim, he is he was a minister. His wife was killed in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. And even though his church was very supportive and the people around him were supportive, he says, you know, I just need to get away from this. I, you know, she was everything to me. I, I, I just, I love you people. Thank you for trying to help. I just need to not be here. And so he goes back to something that he was really good at being a cabinet maker. And he is brought into it just by the fact that at, at one point, for example, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but at one point there seems to be a flaw and I made big in your face kind of flaw with the construction. And they ask him about it. And he comes, looks and says, that's, that's just weird. Cause that shouldn't be, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, unless they were using a nail gun and it was misfiring somehow, these nails should not look like this. This shouldn't be happening. And then as he's going in working on cabinets and things begin to happen and he's that, you know, this should not be happening. So he sort of brought in originally as, well, good, we need somebody to make cabinets. You're supposed to be the best, and the cabinets we have are just torquing off the wall. Can you come in and help us? 
And then he begins to realize that um, that there are things going on here that just you can't explain by faulty craftsmanship or something like that because the rest of the house is too well built for that to be the case. Uh, and I won't say that he and the sheriff kind of make goo-goo eyes at each other, but if you want to assume that, you can. And so, you know, they sort of team up that way as well. All right. Uh, I want to talk a little more about your background because you uh, you have a very, very diverse background. You're a former uh, news reporter and TV news producer, also an, an ordained United Methodist minister, worship leader and musician, essayist and playwright. But I like to focus on your work as a minister and reporter. Did these two roles in your life really factor into your writing? They they did. Um I was a I was a Methodist minister for 15 years. We moved. Uh, my wife was offered a job offer at that point of a lifetime, and I said, "Okay, Methodist system is a connectional system. I'll get a church in South Carolina." So we moved to Aiken, South Carolina. The bishop was a family friend, and I called him and said, "I'm not looking for anybody to pull strings. I just don't know how to do this. We're moving to South Carolina. Who do I talk to about getting in the system there?" He said, well, I can give you people to talk to, but I have more people than I have places. I don't have anywhere for you. But okay. All right. Well, thank you. And so we moved to South Carolina. I looked for jobs and, um, and of course, had been writing nights and weekends for years and went to the Aiken Standard newspaper and handed the, um, the managing editor a file folder full of stuff I had written, you know, celebrity profiles, you name it. He said, what can I do for you? I said, I want to give you every reason in the world to hire me. Here you go. He said, I'm on the way to a conference in Chicago. Can I call you when I get back? Sure. And the short, boring version of a long, boring story is they they hired me. And so I was happy as I could be. I was, you know, I was the city, uh, city beat reporter. And one of the things that that really taught me was writing type. Because if the editor says you've got four inches, don't hand in seven. <laughs> you know, don't hand in four and a half. You know, you know, give them what they want. But it also it also helped me look at stories that maybe aren't that exciting, and making something exciting out of them. You know, what can you do with the flower show? Well, if you really wander around and think about it, and watch, you'll find something. And so it it sort of reshaped the way I thought. Being a minister, even when I was a minister, I was writing at nights and on the weekends and that sort of thing. And that, you know, that part fed a lot of thinking about how the characters might have felt and what they and, and again, I'm one of those people that um if you ask me what a character was thinking at a certain time, I'll probably say nothing. But I was thinking I have a deadline or I gotta go get supper. But um, but looking at how people think and feel and react in certain situations, uh, there is a scene, I don't know if you've gotten to it yet, but where the parents and Jim are talking to each other about a child that died. And that is actually a conversation I had with someone. And without giving anything away, basically, the minister that they had at the time said, oh, well, I guess when that child died, 
God needed another angel in heaven or something like that. And Jim says, what a load of bullshit. And the couple just stares at him. He said, that's a term I learned in seminary. It works really well in situations like this, because I think when your child died, God cried as hard as you did. And then it moves on to the next, but that also sets up something for later. But um, so that, you know, that's, um, that helped them thinking, how would people actually react? What would they be feeling at this point? How do I show that? Um, and we're from the newspaper. I went to the TV station um, as the producer for the morning show. And that was another lesson in not only how to write tight, but how to how to write on the fly. Um, you know, if, if somebody is out, then, you know, not only am I the producer, but I'm also the video editor. <laughs> uh, so it's but it it changes the way you think when you when you look at how the job is done. Um, there are some people that will get in a not really a rut, but they do things this way. And, and that's the way they'll always do it. And sometimes as a writer, you have an idea and it takes you somewhere you've never been before. You go, okay, this is where we're going next. Um, and then the, you know, the playwright and the other things were just things that had happened while I was writing the others. Um, the, the interesting one was when I was doing some PR writing and realizing that there's a lot of weird stuff out there to write, like um, writing about $10 million houses. And the people you're writing it for want things like the crystalline snow and the magnificent blue sky. You're going, but my hands will cramp if I type that. And they tell you what they're paying and you go, they're feeling better. <laughs> but all of it, you know, all of it um, had some bearing and took me from what I did at point A to, OK, I can do this a little differently. Um, you know, I can tighten this up even more or you know, how would this play out in real life? And so I think in some cases, it actually gives my characters a little more depth than, say, you know, five, 10 years earlier. I can I can definitely relate to the journalism part because I work in news writing, too. So, yeah, mm -hmm. brevity is so key. Yeah. But on the other side of it, as a novelist, you sort of have this whole open space to play with as, as much as you want to. How do you sort of know when you've like done enough, basically, with a certain scene or a certain chapter? That, for me, is just, uh, it's it's the way it feels. It feels like I've come to the end. It, and I know that's not a good explanation, but it's it's sort of what it is. It's, you, know, you write, and again, I'm seeing this sort of play out in my head as I'm writing it. Uh, I'm working on the thing now. Um, and it's a, it's a novella, and I'm doing it. There are no chapter, um, been kind of freeing, but it also sort of crunches me in a little bit. There are no chapters. It's just one long, you know, this person walks in and this begins to happen. And over the next 12 hours, this is what happens. But there are no, there are no chapter divisions because I want to build that whole sense of it starts and it keeps moving and the intensity builds and it builds. But that is, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You go in and look at, okay, where do I move to the next thing? Um, and in the novella, it's even a little harder because it's it's shorter. But again, if for me, it's a matter of feel. I get to a point and I feel like, okay, this this is a good place to stop. It, the, the action builds up to a point that, 
okay, what's going to happen next? Let's stop here. And we'll pick it up in the next chapter and we'll see what happens next. So again, it, for me, it's primarily just this feels like the place to stop. Um, there is a, a book that I have that I've started working on just because I had the idea and thought, okay. And the first chapter is the nightmare began in daylight with flowers. Chapter two. That's a great first chapter. <laughs> That is such a good first chapter, man. Roll with that every time. Yeah, and I, you know, that one I looked at, and I that was going to be the first sentence, and I thought, nope, that's it. And look, so again, it's just a matter of this is right or this feels right, and I may go back and, and edit and go, okay, I need to punch it up some, but it initially is this is the place. Now we move on to the next step. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but I do want to ask a little more about the line for Christian horror. Like, what are certain things that you flat out cannot do? There there are some subjects. Uh, it's, it's only been within the last maybe 10 years that you could deal with, uh, like, sex trafficking, especially when it has to do with children. Um there are certain words that you just, you know, the, the big debate in, in Christian fiction for a long time now has been, can you curse in Christian fiction? And you, and on the surface, you think, well, gosh, what a stupid thing. People curse in real life. But, but the other side of that is uh, in, in Christian fiction, it should do three things for people that are believers. It should confirm what they believe um it should it should sort of give that stamp of yes you were right to to the tenets of the faith the second thing that it should do is for people that don't believe it should give them at least a place that they can look if you're not hammering them over the head now there's some christian fiction I could not point a non-believer to it because they would just say, are you kidding? But for people that are sort of on the fence, it should give them some insight into how God works in the lives of people, but it should do it without being heavy handed. And the third thing that it should do for people that aren't looking to have their faith, um, uh, you know, tested or, you know, they're, 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 they're firm in who they are and what they believe they're not concerned about learning the other it should provide a safe place for them to go to to read a story that if they don't want you know sex and violence and language they're not going to get it and that is a that's a big concern um you know for the most part sex in christian fiction you lead them to the door and close the door and they're on the outside of the door, not on the, um, and and it and it seems a little a little funny in some ways. But again, like you know, I I came along on Stephen King and Richard Layman, so um, the two that you know don't necessarily care which side of the door you're on. But but a lot of people that read Christian fiction, that's really what they want. They want that place they can go read a western. They can go read a romance. They can read. Like I said, for the longest time, you couldn't say horror, and still a lot of times can't. It's supernatural suspense. They want to be able to read that kind of thing, but in a safe environment that does not 
poke what they believe in the eye, if you will. It it doesn't try to push the taboos. Um, and, and, and on the other side of that, if that's what they want and it's it's available to them, I mean, I, I get it, you know, for, for the ones that want to have um, what they believe confirmed, they should do that. But also for the ones who say, yeah, but I just want a good story and I don't want a lot of cussing. I don't want to know what y'all doing on the other side of the door. I don't want to see all the he and she and going on. I just want a good story that I won't have to hide if my grandmama comes over. Uh, and I think that's legitimate because, you know, their money spends as good as anybody else's. And and I know it's not all about the money, but, you know, it's publishing. So a big part of it is about the money. And I get it because, you know, they're going to give me some of it and, you know, other writers some of it. So I want them to get some. But but, yeah, there it's it's how you approach it and that line you draw that says, OK, I won't say that. I won't approach this topic uh, because there are other places you can do it. How about endings? Now, for a story like this, you got to have a really good ending, especially after pages and pages of you know nightmares. How do you know when you have a good ending for a story like this? Uh, part of it is, is after you've written it and you walk away from it for a few days and you come back and read it. Like I said, the first time I read it, I thought, this is okay. It should be better than okay. What is it missing? Um, there are people that I, and I don't let a lot of people read what I'm working on one because they don't want to. And two, um, it's like one of the things that, that kills me on social media is in, especially on Twitter is people that will say, this is my whip, my work in progress. And this is what it's about. That's great. But what if you change your mind, you're locking yourself into this storyline. So, you know, when people say, what are you working on? Oh, it's a, it's a thriller or it's a, um, it's a horror novel or it's whatever. What's it about? You know, I'm still figuring that part out because when you lock yourself in, there's a part of you that literally starts following that path and it's hard to get out of. So, but there are, there, uh, there are few people that um, one was the person who gave me my first column years ago for actual money and, uh, I sent him a short story one time. He mailed it back to me, and it looked like Freddy Krueger had worked on it because it was red everywhere. And at the, on the last page, it says, call me. Well, really? There's nothing left. What's there to talk about? But he gave me a master's class in how short stories should work as opposed to columns. And it was a 45-minute phone call, and I, you know, I hung up going, Wow. I have relearned everything, but here's one of the people I'll send it to and say, okay, Joe, um, just tell me what you think, if it works. And like I said, sometimes you read it and you know, at that point, this works, this bang, this is it. But again, there are those times when you look at it and it's not a matter of, I need a different character or I should have started this earlier. It's a matter of, I don't like it and I don't know why. Or it's okay, but it's not okay enough, and I don't know why. And so, you know, I'll put it aside, and then I'll come back and look at it again. And sometimes that will be all it takes. And sometimes, again, it's a matter of finding one of those two or three people and saying, look at this, giving you no context. Just look at this. Tell me what you think. And generally, that will do it because... Um, because those people have read enough and have edited enough and those sorts of things that some of them get it just like that. And go, Man, how did I miss that? And sometimes I go, it's, 
I'm not sure either, but I know this is the part that bothers me. And oh, that yeah, let's fix this. So yeah, it's it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I, I've always been curious about when it comes to horror writers, do you ever get scared by your own stuff? Not often. Uh, there have there have been a few times uh, I write something and sit back and go, okay, um, coffee time. <laughs> but um, sometimes I will be scared by the concept um, because when you come right down to it, you know, the, the characters are not going to do anything that ultimately I don't let them do. Uh, even in those times when you're writing and the characters are just going everywhere and they're doing their thing, I still get to go back and edit. But there are there are times, and this actually came up in an interview maybe 25 years ago, where somebody asked if because I was, if, since I was a minister, did I have some special insight into horror i said no but i know the difference between badness and evil and sometimes i just i just finished a story and submitted it uh, to an anthology and that one bothered me because the things that i was writing about are things that are not uncommon to read about and the thing that that gets me is how can people do this I know how I can write it as a writer because I'm making this stuff up hard as I can. But also there's a part of it that I'm making it up, but it's also coming from real life and this stuff happens. So it's not the stuff on the page that bothers me. It's the fact that the stuff that's on the page is also out there in the real world. And that's the thing that gives me the credit. Well, this book, folks, will definitely scare the hell out of you. And you can get it October 13th through Cemetery Dance Publications. Hardcover, paperback, ebook, it's all out there. You go to their site, get your copy, go to your local bookstore, get your copy from them. That's what they do. And Thomas, it's been a really fun talking to you, but where do folks go to learn more about you and check out your works? Uh, you can go to www.thomas-smith.us, and there is also a link there to my newsletter, which is relatively new. It's an occasional newsletter. Uh, I don't have enough sense to put out interesting stuff every week, but when I do come across interesting stuff, I will put it out there. Uh, but they're the two places to get started, and they'll take you to to all the other places. There is a really screwy free story on the website. Um, it's called Former Wear. That's all I will say about it. But um, by the time you get to the end, you'll say, oh, yeah, he's not right. I disagree because I'm reading the book so far and I got to say, I'm really, really enjoying it. So, sir, you're all right to me. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. Well, Thomas, again, loving the book, enjoying this conversation. And I certainly look forward to the next time we can talk. I look forward to that too. And thank you for everybody for listening, for being awake. I hope. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! And with that, folks, this episode has come to a close. I really hope you check out this book. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And even if you're familiar with the haunted house genre, I promise this is going to have something very new to offer you. In the meantime, you can follow this show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>